Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. We have a fun podcast for you today. We've got two people on. Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. They have recently written together the book, Designing Your Life. It's a number one New York Times bestseller for good reason. I really loved it. Uh, The subtitle, How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life. Uh, It's it's coming out of the sort of school of of designing your life, of thinking carefully about uh, where you are, what you're doing, how you're doing it, and making choices uh, that will lead you to a life that is more in line or aligned with kind of who you are and what you want to accomplish in the world. Bill is the executive director of the Stanford Design Program and co-founder of the Life Design Lab, as well as a former leader of Apple's PowerBook product line and CEO of a design consultancy. Bill, thank you for the PowerBook. Dave Evans is co-founder of the Life Design Lab a lecturer in Stanford Design Program, a management consultant, and formerly a co-founder of Electronic Arts. I'm delighted to have you both here. I'm delighted that you wrote the book. Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Peter. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So you start by a few basic premises that seem so straightforward and yet are difficult for people to live their lives by. One is you're not defined by your earlier choices. Another is that problems can actually be a good thing because they indicate an opportunity to close a gap between something unsatisfactory and something super cool. Uh, And that closing the gap is less about thought experiments and more about action experiments and playful failure and step-by-step movements towards super cool. And that the process never ends, that you're never at a point where you say, great, I've designed my life and... Uh, and now we're done, and I can live it for the next 40 years. So I, I, I love these premises, and this is a little weird. I don't exactly know what my question is here, but I, I would love your thoughts on them or how people perceive them or how difficult it is for people to understand them or anything you want to talk about around these design premises. You know, I'll, I'll say one thing to kick off with. One of the – because, you know, we're, we're literally having the first year anniversary of the book this week. You know, so this has been the year of the book, and we've been very humbled and honored and astonished by the response to it, which has been huge. And so we've been out on the road, I think between us together, Bill and I have probably done about 100 gigs this last year. So we've talked to thousands of people face to face, and many, many, many people are, um, are being helped. And a lot of them were really stuck behind one of, one of these what we call dysfunctional beliefs. Um, and, and then can fairly quickly get free to, gee, now that I think about it, it doesn't really make any sense. Do you, what else would I do? Hey, try this approach. Okay, great. Um, I think the most astonishing thing to me has been how powerfully pernicious a popular, but ungenerative and unhelpful idea can be when the meta narrative of culture all agrees that, well, whatever you majored in college, that's what you got to do, you know, which is completely stupid. Um, then we fall for it. And it's not that hard to break out. So the first observation is it's a lot easier to break out of these problems than you think. You know, it's interesting because when you when you um, say that, I think of sunk costs and the challenge that we have <laughs> of acknowledging, you know, that, you know what, maybe I've spent the last 14, 
20 years being a doctor, but it's not really what I want to do. That's hard, I imagine, for people to sort of let that go. How do you help them? Well, you, I, I love the idea of sunk cost. That's that we, we hadn't thought of that. But that's exactly we'll steal that right going, now. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's going on, right? Is that people get over invested in something that doesn't work for them, and for whatever reason, they found themselves doing that. And you know, we've been on these this book tour, and I meet a lot of people who are doctors or lawyers or partners at the firm of some sort, um, very successful people, and feeling really miserable because it didn't. It's not what they wanted. They they just kind of chased the the brass ring. They they kept getting it. They're now in a position of you know, power and some money, and um, it's just not working for them. And so you mentioned the, our, our core idea of, hey, let's, uh, let's, you can't think your way to the future. You're going to have to design your way. You have to build stuff. So we call them you know, life design prototypes. You're going to go out in the world, and you're going to make these little experiments, these little prototypes in the world to see, hey, what's available to me right now? And is this interesting? Is this interesting? You're going to follow your curiosity. So two mindsets of a designer, curiosity. Follow your curiosity, biased action, get out and do something because it isn't a thought experiment. It's your life. And, and it's going to, it's going to unfold in the world with other people. That's radical collaboration, third mindset. So it's uh, you know, Dave and I like to say, set the bar low, prototype something, learn something, this idea of lots and lots of experiments to learn things. And, um, and then, you know, listen, listen both to your head and, and somewhat to your heart about what's working for you. And you can, you can get unstuck from any situation. So I'm curious about the um, the uncertainty and how uncertainty plays into this, right? So I'm going to give you a, a crystal example that's all about uncertainty, and then maybe it's not really applicable. But <laughs> okay. I, I'm faced with this decision about disability uh, insurance, and yep. you know, my, my I pay a lot of money for it. It seems ridiculously high. And my insurance guy is saying, hey, you know what? I've got a client who has Parkinson's. I've got a client who has cancer. You never know what can happen to you. And this sense of, you know, how do I make a decision where when the future is so uncertain? And I'm thinking about this disability one, but, you know, the the doctor who's saying, you know, I might follow this path and there's so much uncertainty. I want to be an artist, but then I won't be able to pay for school. And, I won't and there's so much uncertainty to that future. It freezes us in making decisions. So on the one, how do you help people with that uncertainty? And two is if you have an answer to my disability question, I'd love to hear it because I'm still trying to figure <laughs> that one out. Yeah, well, on your disability, actually, your disability metaphor is a really good example of a lousy, of a lousy situation to apply design thinking. I mean, this this right. is a you can know everything there is to know about the probability of Parkinson's and, and the cost of the various and sundry su suppliers of this form of insurance. Right. Now, you know, everything there is to know. There's nothing to prototype. There's nothing to think about. You simply have to make a decision with and accept the ambiguity. Like, you know, I'm spending a lot of money on a thing that may not happen. Dave, I love so that's that. Actually, that's I, actually I, acceptance. Yeah, I love it you because there, there's some decisions where you're just where you you know, it, the universe will figure it out in the next 20 years. You're never going to know. You just make a choice. Right. Right. Well, I mean, the, the, the number one reframe we do for people is there is no one right answer to your life. There are lots of great yous. There's no one single best you. I, and you, by the way, you never actually know um, about the ones you didn't get a chance to try. So right. we're all getting partial credit on essay questions, not right, wrong, on true, false, on all the big issues of life. Um, and that's the simple, once you accept that that's the nature of being a human being, then how's it going today? You know, it's going reasonably well, which is fabulous because that's as good as it gets. Right. And, and, and by the way, you can, you, you can make that, 
although it's not necessarily a design decision. You can make the decision about disability insurance or any of these other uncertainties. You can make a you can make a good decision well. And you know, if you look at the work of Dan Gilbert at Harvard and some other guys, the way you make this decision is you decide, I'm going to buy it, I'm not going to buy it. Whatever you decide, you, you pick the thing. And then you burn the bridges and you move forward. You just simply say, decision's done, I love it, I made a good decision, and you move on. If you, if you continue to reevaluate the decision, if you leave the decision irrevocable, uh, like I, I might change my, or open, you will destroy, one, your, your happiness with the decision, and two, your ability to kind of just let go and, and move on. So that we have a decision-making model in the book. It, it comes right out of the positive psychology, guys. If you want to make a good decision well, make it irrevocable. Great. So you mentioned five mindsets. Be curious, bias for action. You've already talked about those. Radical collaboration. You talked about that, although you may want a sentence or two about what makes it radical. And two others, reframing problems and awareness, knowing that it's a process. Can you give us a sentence or two on each of those? Well, sure. Um, you know, curiosity is the thing I think that drives all human beings. We're naturally curious creatures. And we just have to kind of, in some cases, uh, when we've been doing something for a long, long time, we have to sort of just reawaken our curiosity and get curious about either the thing we're doing or the thing we might want to do next. So um, curiosity is just a natural. We, we all had it as kids school and life beat it out of us. So we have to kind of go find it sometimes. Um, you know, uh, biased action is just, you know, like we said, go out and do some, you know, run little experiments. We call them prototypes. Run lots and lots of experiments to discover because the answer is in the world. It's not in your head. If you knew the answer, you would you'd be doing it. So you have to go get some data. The data is out in the world. The idea of radical collaboration is simply, you know, get out of your bubble. Stop talking to your friends and people who are just like you because they probably have the same concerns and, and questions you have, and they don't have any new data. So you got to go meet people. You got to meet people who are different than you in order to find out, you know, where in the world is your next, your next adventure. Um, the mindful of process stuff, just knowing it's a process, you know, there's times in design when you diverge, you're looking for lots and lots of new ideas. And there's times in, in, in design process where you converge, you pick a thing and you, and you test it. If you're on a team of people and half the people are diverging and half the people are trying to converge, it's very confusing. So just stay mindful of where you are in the process. Um, and what was the one I missed? A uh, reframe. So, reframe. So, yeah, reframe. Well, you know, reframe. Yeah, good, Dave. Reframe is the uh, big Reframe one. pops out of, you know, uh, I mean, the first thing we do is acceptance. And the first thing we do out of that radical collaboration and the radical part, by the way, isn't radical ideas or radical people. It's radically inclusive. Go listen in from everywhere, have heard everything, you know, problem find before you problem solve. And then once you've listened deeply into a situation, uh, listened deeply into a decision or an idea, what's going to happen is you're going to have a new point of view form. And so now you're coming from that new point of view. You're reframing. Gosh, you know, I noticed I really can't, you know, companies are flattening now and the company's beginning to stabilize. There's no way to go up. I can't get promoted. I'm done now. No, no, let's look at what's really going on in the company. Oh, we're diversifying. Okay, I'm going to reframe. Gee, what else laterally is going on that's interesting horizontally with high growth curves for me intellectually? That's a different framing than how do I become a manager and get more money that way? Um, so I reframe into information that, that tells me there's a different story going on. I like that idea, which is that, you know, your mind is viewing something in a certain way. And if you shift the way your mind is viewing it, then you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate it or approach it in a completely different way. I also yeah. really love this bias for action, right? I think it's, you know, and, and, and actually for those of you that are just listening in, we're um, speaking with Bill Burnett and Dave Evans Designing Your Life is their most recent book. We're at the one-year anniversary of the book, so I'm happy to, to sort of be celebrating that with you guys. 
And if you're a coach listening to this, I really urge you to to buy this book and read this book because the, when I think about these five mindsets, the be curious, the bias for action, reframing problems, you know, understanding the idea of a process and radical collaboration, that's what coaches do with people. That's what, you know, if you're going to be an effective coach, you're going to be working to help people increase their curiosity and actually take actions, not try to figure everything out in their heads and, and you know, understand the idea of a process. So I think it's really a yeah. fantastic book. You have lots of examples, guys, in this book of people who are in the wrong jobs, the wrong majors. They're truly miserable, right? It's a very clearly defined problem. But what about malaise? What about a nagging, soft sense of dissatisfaction? It's not as clear as a problem of being a biology major but hating biology. It's, it's the sense of like, I don't know. I mean, I think I could be happier, but, but something's bugging me. How do you help people kind of address that sense. Yeah, most yeah. of our most of our clients and readers and students don't do the big radical shift. I mean, the college students come out and are doing something for the first time, so by definition it's dramatic. Um, for the most of for the most part. But most people don't, you know, jump out of the airplane or sign up for Cirque du Soleil to become, you know, a, a French clown. You know, that's not the move they're mostly making. Um, they're mostly making things a little bit better where they are. You know, and so for to make things a little bit better where you are, you really got to get underneath you know, what's bugging you, what is working for you. You know, so there's this exercise we call the good time journal uh, that help you find out where where are the points of engagement in your life that are working, where are the points of engagement that are not, and start understanding that, which can then lead you to taking a couple of steps. And I'll throw it back to Bill and say, so, gee, Bill, after I do my good time journal, now what do I do? Well, you know, again, you, you, you probably start doing some prototypes. but And there's one, I was going to mention one other uh, yeah. little tool we have. The, the book is just full of these tools and ideas and things you can try. And you can do them in any order you want. But if, if malaise is the issue, and I actually was going through this a little bit when we were doing the book. And we have, we have this little thing we, we call the, you know, the, oh. the balance dashboard. Right. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about work-life balance. But the problem with work-life as a duality is that, you know, your brain likes to take these dualities and make it a zero-sum game. If I have more of one, I have less of the other. And that's, that's really not the way life is. So we did, we did um, you know, work, uh, lo- uh, health, work, love, and play is our little four things on our dashboard. So assess, assess for, and you can, have you can have 100% of all of them. It's just like a dashboard on your car. You can have yeah, all you can move one dial without the, the other is moving, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if, if something's out of whack, and for me, what was out of, when I did that dashboard, I went, well, you know, I, uh, my health is pretty good. I could probably work out somewhere, but my health is good. My work is fantastic. I love the, the teaching and the, and the writing and stuff that I do. Um, uh, play was almost at zero. I wasn't doing anything playful in my life. And that's where the sense of, wow, something isn't right came from. So do the work, love, health, play dashboard and see if you can, you know, that, that's an instant assessment. Then if you come up, you know, if you, if you journal for a while, if you practice, you know, just writing down how am I feeling and looking for moments of high engagement or high energy, um, then we can double down on those. You know, the, the, this concept of flow that comes up a, a bunch of times in positive psychology. You know, Go ahead, try this, to pronounce his name. Yeah. Um, check sent me high. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Impossible name to pronounce him. We probably do it wrong every other time. Um, but it's, it's this notion of looking for places where you're fully engaged. Um, you know, when we started the book, we're, we're designers. And when we started the book, we did it. We didn't just start writing. We did a bunch of need finding. We went out and did empathy with people. Number one thing is people say, I want my life to, um, and the end of my, at the end of the day, I want someone to say that life was purposeful. It had meaning. Uh, and I did something, you know, bigger than myself. I don't want to just, you know, at, at my eulogy, I don't want people to say, wow, he did really good PowerPoint decks. 
you know, I, I want something bigger than that. And so, um, you know, meaning comes from engagement and engagement is where you spend your energy, right? But what, what you actually do, what you actually work on. So if you can take, take either the work, love, play health dashboard or something like the good time journal and just start noticing where are my points of high engagement? Oh, those are probably things I either want to add into my vocation, the thing I'm doing for work or my avocation, the thing I'm doing for love. And this also, you know, to split those two out, they, they aren't the same. So great. So I'm going to give you a concrete example. And I, I love the dashboard. And, and I, when I look at myself for the example, uh, the, for the dashboard, um, you know, work, play, love, health. Uh, I, I'm actually, you know, pretty uh, happy with where I am in each of those. But the play category I fall short in. And here's the dynamic is I begin to play like I, I want to play with writing. I think writing's kind of fun. So I begin to play with writing. But then I start a column at HBR and now I have to do something every week. And now ink, I'm talking to ink and suddenly play become works. I love skiing and, and I was a ski racer as a kid. So now I teach it on the weekends and I'm, you know, I'm teaching it. I enjoy being physical and, and, and now I'm really pushing myself to optimizing my health. And so, you know, the, the someone, you know, a, a, a girlfriend many, many, many years ago, I've been married for a long time, but so this is probably, you know, 30 years ago or something said, is there anything you do that's not for a purpose? And my answer is always, I really love everything that I do. Like there's nothing I don't love, but there is always something that I'm trying to get out of it in the end or that I use it to be efficient or et cetera. And I think underlying that is some nagging insecurity of like not having enough or not needing more money or whatever that is. So, so my question is, how do you, you know, when you look at each of these four things and he goes, okay, play is kind of an interesting one. Everything I do for play becomes work. So what's your, what are your thoughts? Well, this is simple, Peter. And by the way, you know, we're, we're not, we don't do therapy. Um, so we, so if you want to go down to the nagging, you know, your mother took the teddy bear away too soon, you know, right. and, and I hear, else, and I hear you, you saying know, that yeah. a probably therapy would be helpful for me, but if we go no, beyond I mean, that. No, actually I'm not. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is we agree with the trend in therapy, which is, you know, figuring it out is kind of helppful, but actually behaving differently is hugely helpful. Right. Um, so, so again, bias to action is now actually creeping into psychology finally, where it deserves to be too. Right. Um, we would say, look. You know, paying attention. You know, in the latter part of the book, we talk about personal practices and paying attention. Um, and so, if you're paying attention, go. Oh, I notice that Peter has an incredibly strong habit of instrumentalizing everything. You know, you're a business guy. We talk about business thinking is organized around optimizing and systematizing, and that's what you will do. Given a chance to optimize and systematize to an instrumental outcome, you will go there every single time. So now you have a new design goal. I have a design goal to create an activity or even a habit in my life which has no instrumental outcome and cannot be systematized. Now, either I'm going to be just guard against it like, no, I will not be the ski teacher. I'll just come be your demo bunny once a month, every, you know, um, or, or I pick things that really can't be instrumentalized, right? You know, I mean, Bill's working on his art and he's a little ways away from being a fabulously successful artist who has to spend all his time at the gallery. Eventually he may have that problem. Uh, but, you know, uh, what you just you design for what you want, you know, and all you have to do is go, oh, I, I've learned something. I notice I'm going to increment forward and I'm going to try to for just once I'm going to pick one fun thing I do that could be instrumentalized. I'm going to do it six times without structuring it, grading it, scoring it, 
you know, and my goal, I have now a goal. My goal is to be a score-free person six <laughs> times, you know, so you game it, you just game yourself. Right. I love your limitation of six times because it feels like the combination of curiosity and awareness and a bias for action says you need a point at which you try something and stop and reflect back on it and say, how's it going? Now, finite is your friend. I led a small discussion group of young professionals on these kinds of issues um, for six weeks, and they weren't quite done, and we renewed another six weeks. We did that some 20-odd times over a two-and-a-half-year period. And a year and a half into it, I said, guys, can we disagree? We meet on Wednesdays. And everybody goes, no, I just can't deal with that. So we just did six weeks at a time for two-and-a-half years. That's great. That's great. Um, in your experience in helping people design their lives, and, and a lot of my questions might lean towards the psychology because I feel like the challenges we often face is, you know, kind of bridges that gap between psychology and, and action. And I, I imagine that people are trying to solve problems, but there are underlying problems. You know that adage that wherever you go, there you are, right? Yeah. And in other words, if we're unsettled, there may be elements of ourselves um, versus what we're doing that we're unsettled about. And I could fantasize about leaving New York and living in the Berkshires and having a garden and living that life. But then I actually get to the Berkshires and I'm just exchanging one set of problems for another and that you know, ultimately the issue might be my sort of dissatisfaction with something. I don't know what, how do you, how do you see that play out uh, with people whose lives you help to redesign? And when you watch them redesign their lives? Well, my guess is Peter, you get to the Berkshires and you start growing tomatoes and then you decide I'm going to enter the tomato growing competition and I'm going to grow the biggest tomato, you know, um, you know, <laughs> heirloom uh, incorporated. Yeah. yeah. In our, in our, in our model, you're on you know, to you me. Yeah, <laughs> the standard design thinking model, we say you start with empathy, then you redefine the problem, you ideate and build and test. But in our model, we say you start with accept. Because uh, as Dave is famous for saying, you can't solve a problem you're not willing to have. So first of all, you got to say, okay, I, I really do want to, I, I want something to change. I, I need something to change in my life. I've got this malaise or I've got this problem or I've got this thing. Or I'm just curious and I'm just wondering if there's something that could be better. So you start with accept, and then you look out for two really nasty kinds of problems. One's called a gravity problem, and one's called an anchor problem. I'll, I'll describe anchor, and David can do gravity because he does it better. Um, the anchor problem is, um, oh, gee, you know, I, what I'd really like to do is have a garden, but we can't afford to move to the Berkshires, so I can't have a garden, right? So what I've done is I've said— the so, I, so I must be unhappy. Yeah. So the solution to my my problem is um, the 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 presenting idea is, gee, I'd like to do it. I'd like to be a gardener or do something in the garden. But I've decided the only solution. I've anchored on the solution of moving to the Berkshires. Since we can't move to the Berkshires, I can't have a garden. Therefore, I can't be happy. But you see, what you've done is you've baked the solution into the problem. The solution has been defined as the problem. Can't move to the Berkshires. Look. I'm sure there's community gardens in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I'm sure there's ways you could put a container on the porch. There's a million different ways you could do it. But we notice people all the time pick a solution, pretend it's the problem, and then say, oh, gosh, since I can't have the thing I want, you know, I can't, quote, solve this problem. So they've mistaken a solution for a problem. They've anchored on it, and now they can't move forward. Once we explain it to them, it's almost laughable. They go, oh, you're you're right. There is. I could reframe this, and there's hundreds of ways to 
be a gardener in Manhattan. And maybe so it's not even problem. maybe gardener is also an anchor problem because the reality is maybe exactly. it's about spending time outdoors in their Central Park. Maybe it's about growing something. So so it's and, and what you're saying is very consistent and, and really helpful to what you said at the very, very beginning, which is, you know, redesigning your life doesn't mean picking up learning surfing and moving to Malibu, although it might for somebody, but there's often these little shifts that we can make in our lives that bring us closer to the sort of deeper connection of who we are and what the way we want to live our lives. And, and the ability to, to reframe these problems is really critical. You know, there's a, a your business guy, there's a Peter Drucker quote that there's nothing so there's an, absolutely nothing so useful as solving something very well that never needed to be solved in the first place. Right. I mean, so many people are working on problems that really don't they, they really don't exist. And, and the gravity is an example, Dave. Well, hey, gravity, and also because the question you're asking, Peter, is, is am I really working on the right thing? Or once I put the solution in place, am I going to get the benefit out of it? Or is this masking some other underlying thing, whether it's personal or what have you? I mean, let's get to that, too, because that's the, the subtlety of, of, you know, problem, you know, selection. Um, but a, a classic, in fact, this has probably been the number one surprise for us. I mean, what are the things we hear back from people on the book all the time about? We hear this one a lot. Um, which is gravity problems and gravity problems are like, you know, I'm a cyclist uh, and I'm aging. So I'm, you know, I, I didn't get the freshman 15 in college, but I am getting the 64 year old guys, 12, you know, pound addition. Um, so my gears are working less well going up hills and Hey Bill, you know, I got this problem. It's gravity. It's making me crazy. You know, it's just ruining my cycling experience. I can you help me with gravity? And of course the answer is, uh, no, gravity is not a problem. It's a force of nature. Um, you know, you can't fix gravity. So a lot of people, um, have a problem which isn't actionable at all. It was actually an actual issue, right? But the problem is unactionable. As designers say, if you can't act on it, bias to action, then it's not a problem, it's a circumstance. So the reframe is, you know, you're just heavier, Dave. So if you accept that you now weigh, you know, 220, not 210, um, then what are you going to do? I kind of go, okay, well, I could look into lighter biking materials. I could look into flatter routes. I could look into just more gears. I could look into, like, get over it. You know, uh, there are a whole bunch of ways that free me to move into solving the problem I actually have that's actionable, but I don't like. When you notice that you really are having a problem with your problem, that's a problem. So when your problem isn't your problem, but it's your problem with your problem, you probably have a gravity problem, and that's a problem. Um, so that's what you got to watch out for. And a lot of people, and, soon, and as soon as you realize your problem is a gravity problem, it's an unactionable the way it's currently framed. Um, people often, you know, hate that. Like you mean, I'll never, you know, well, you know, I'll probably never get rich being a poet. Well, okay, you know, but can I live and do poetry? Sure, you could in a variety of ways. You know, I mean, you could you could grow something, Peter, even if you're not taking the train in from the Berkshires. So let's let's actually take this gravity problem and apply it, um, to, uh, it subtly to something that you wrote in the book. Um, uh, Dave, you're now from this podcast a famous procrastinator. Um, yes, right, right, and and so um, you also said uh, in the book that there's not much for you left to learn there. Like you, it's a weakness, and right. it's something you do. So um, how do we tell that a weakness? I'm going to make a link now to what you were just yep. saying. To what extent does a weakness become a gravity problem, which is I'm just not going to change that about me. That's just the reality. I mean, or to right. what extent, you know, can we change anything about ourselves because, because we can. I mean, what, I'm kind of curious 
to know how we know when a, yeah. a weakness is something that we still try to get better at or something we give up on. Yeah. Oh boy. This is a, I think this is a really, really tough growing up call. I can hear, I can hear Carol Dweck's voice screaming yeah. in the background, even now um, on persistence and grit. The way I often frame this is um, all of us many times in life have to decide when is it time to work through something? When is it time to work around something? Right. And that's a judgment call. Uh, that's really a judgment call. Well, and it's interesting um, because it, you've got like Carol Dweck, for example, yeah. who, who's been on this podcast, who will say, and who I love, you know, who'll say you have a growth mindset, you can improve on anything, et cetera. Go for it. Yeah, you've got Marcus Buckingham and Gallup who are going to say, you know, leverage your strengths and right. you can't fix a weakness and don't bother to it. And just so, and I think this is what people yeah, don't, are often faced with, which is these right. differing you know, perspectives. And it's like, uh, uh, what, what do I do now? I would, lots of experts are telling me different things. Um, and what we're going to tell you is um, think about it, frame the problem as accurately as you can recognize you're probably not going to quote solve it, but you're going to put a design solution in place for a while, evaluate it and then try again. Life is intrinsically iterative. So, you know, first of all, I think you probably want to bias toward overcomer to some degree. I mean, we would certainly agree with Carol and, um, in that regard, but you know, after a couple of tries, you have to decide, am I hitting the point of diminishing return? Is this really worth it anymore? You know, in my early career, I was trying to be a really effective executive in startups and being a great father. My father died when I was very, very young and I didn't have a dad. I thought being one was really, really important. Um, and I kept working at it and working at it and working at it. And I finally realized at the pace I'm going, being the really efficient, smarter, not harder executive. By the time I pull that off, and I'm still an awesome dad, you know, so I'm killing it in business, and I'm coaching Little League, and I'm teaching Sunday school, and I'm showing up for dinner on time, and I'm amazing. You know, the kids will be about 25. <laughs> and if, you know, I finally said, you know, I think I'd rather get a B on time than an A too late. Um, so you just make judgment calls, and then you, you put some support around you. We haven't talked about teams and support yet, by the way. Um, I think you need some feedback from some people, and, um, this is this is about you know return you know back to ROI. What is, is my life working for me or not? And if it's not working for me in any particular way, it doesn't have to be huge. Then making slight changes that you reflect on and experience and play with in a way that allows you to see if there's an impact. It's like a food journal, and you write tofu didn't feel so good afterwards. Great, I should probably stop eating tofu. Yeah, I mean, to, to what degree? I, I know an autistic gentleman, we'll call him John, um, who lives in a big city in, the, in this country, and John can't do left turns. Just can't do them. But three rights is a left. Now, in his city, there are a lot of one-way streets, but frankly, it's a little bit, he, has to, he just has to leave early. But he can get there. Now, we could hire a psychiatrist and a psychologist and a super coach and have John have the left turn breakthrough. We could, we could, we could break the barrier and probably break his back doing it. But shoot, I mean, life's too, I mean, look, I'll just leave five minutes early, okay? I'm just making three right turns. So, you know, there are trade-offs here. So you have to give yourself a little break. I wish we could go on forever. We're running out of time, but I, I so appreciate uh, both the book and your comments on the podcast. Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. Their book is Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life. It's as enjoyable to read as these guys are to talk with and listen to. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Bill and Dave, for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. You're welcome. Peter, been great to be here. Thanks so much.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.